Hi everyone, you are listening to LD Spotlight, a podcast about learning and development brought to you by Nifty Learning. I'm your host, Liz Stefan, and together we're here to learn about LD. Welcome back, everybody, to the LD Spotlight podcast. We have Andre Postolake with us today. He is a founder at Seriously, a leadership and soft skills consultant. He's the author of Fun and Fearless Leadership and an amateur camper, YouTuber, and pilot. Welcome back, Andre. Hello, everyone, and uh, nice to be back. For today, I'm going to start with an assumption, and I expect that it will turn into a debate. We were talking at some point about the ability of a leader to build a high-performing team, right? And in my mind, that correlates well with having a balanced skill set on the team. I'm going to open the conversation with this question. Is it in fact true that a well-balanced team has the highest performance? The way I think about this is sort of on an axis from one extreme to the other. Clearly, most situations are somewhere in the middle. So in one extreme, you have very specific missions, jobs that are very well-defined. They're not necessarily easy, but they're very well-defined. On the other extreme, you have very ambiguous missions. You're trying to grow the business, you're trying to come up with new products, but you don't know exactly how. You have to think, experiment, try to adapt. I think most situations are more to the second part of the axis. In most real companies, there's a lot of ambiguity, uncertainty, and there's a lot of uh, adaptation that is required. In these situations, a balanced team is an asset because a balanced team means people with different experiences, that think differently, they have different skills, different personalities, different way of looking at things. And that pretty much makes a team that is more prepared to deal with whatever, whatever situation you may be in. You're likely to have at least some members of the team that will have the right kind of insight or at least the right kind of questions to start investigating or addressing that situation. So I would say that in 80-90% of the situation, especially when you're thinking long-term, when you're trying to build a team, build a company, you should go for a balanced team. You should have some risk-takers, but you should have some people that are a bit more careful about risk-taking. You should have people that like to make quick decisions. You should have people that like to analyze data a little bit more. People that are more focused on the clients and the human things and the emotional aspects of using a product or a service. You should also have people that are more data-driven and more mathematical. You should have all kinds of people. If you manage to create an environment where the communication happens and they know how to respect each other and communicate with each other and use each other's strengths, then you truly have a team that is greater than the sum of its parts. You have something that actually becomes really good. The only situation where this becomes sort of a disadvantage is when you have something very specific to do very quickly, a crisis kind of mission. I don't know. It's like an extreme example. An oil platform is burning out in the sea and your team needs to go and put the fire out. Clearly, this is an extreme example, but this is where you're looking for people that are thinking almost exactly identically and they know exactly what they have to do and they can communicate almost without words and can be very efficient very quickly doing a very specific job. In business, I think these situations are relatively rare, so I would pretty much agree with that statement. Just you should know that it takes a little bit of time to build it. If you're a leader and you hire different people, different in all the ways we've been mentioning, maybe they don't actually start working perfectly together immediately. You need to invest a little bit more in creating that team rhythm and helping them and guiding them in how to work with each other being so different in the first place. This raises two things in my mind. One of them is 
what we're talking about is two completely separate scenarios. One of them is the long term, which has as a goal this balancing objective to become a balanced team. And then the crisis situations or the ad hoc teams that resolve urgent things. And these aren't necessarily what I would think about in a software company, right? You rarely have a situation where you need five architects to work together on something. So you don't necessarily have a team of five architects always being there. Yeah. But when a customer or a new opportunity shows up, you take these people out of their current team setup, you organize them like a task force, and then you send them to do the mission. Then once they've completed the mission, they go back into their context and contribute to that well-balanced team that they were part of initially, right? Another way to think about it is known situations versus unknown situations. When you have to deal with situations that are known, that doesn't mean simple. Maybe they're very difficult, but they're similar. You know the nature of the beast, the nature of the problem you're going to face, then balance is less relevant or not less relevant. Then you can have a team that is very precise in what it does and less about finding new ways of doing it. It's just about very good execution. But when you're preparing for the unknown, so you're building a team not to solve just this task and this task and this task, but to solve potentially any situation that might come up that you cannot even foresee for the time being, then the more you face that kind of situation, the more you need a team that is more diverse in how they think and able to adapt. That's usually the situation in most businesses, I think, to various degrees. You need to adapt as well. All right. And then the second thought was, in this case, I guess the leader's job begins with identifying the skill gaps. I'm referring to those teams whose goal is to become well-balanced. The leader's job is to first identify the skill gaps and identify what people are good at and find everybody's place, then gradually work towards reaching that balance, right? I think there's multiple layers to this. The skill balance, there's a layer that is relatively obvious. So for example, you need uh, testers, developers, and designers in a team. It's pretty obvious you need people with three types of specialists. And then it's, again, relatively easy to understand how many of each you need, roughly speaking. So maybe you need four developers, two testers, and one designer. So that first layer is relatively easy. Maybe there's a little bit of flex, a little bit of give and take, but it's relatively easy. But then you go into the deeper meaning of balance. For example, if they're all very analytical introverts, then they all have the same kind of mindset. To any kind of challenge that comes up, to any kind of situation they'll be put in, to any kind of question they'll be asked. So that's a different kind of balance then. You're looking beyond the actual very specific skill and you're thinking about their personalities and how they address things and how they approach new situations and you're trying to get that kind of a balance as well. I think that's a bit more difficult to get. There might be team setups over longer periods of time, even years, that are off balance, let's say, in terms of skills. And I'm actually using this example you just offered with the analytical introverts. Yeah, but if that team of analytical introverts consistently produces good results, obviously compared to the goal of the team, then I guess there's no need to look at skill gaps or try to force people to become more extrovert or improve their soft skills, for example, if the goal of the team is to deliver and the team is delivering, right? Or do you have to? That's part of what makes leadership difficult because I think you're right, but I think there's a point where you have to do something. 
If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Okay. Most of the times, that's the right thing to do on a day-to-day basis. So if you have a team that works, somehow it works. They get along. They deliver results. They're happy with their work. You should leave them alone. As in, you shouldn't try to reinvent things every day just for the sake of reinventing things and do social experiments in your teams just for the sake of doing social experiments. On the other hand, if you're thinking a bit longer term, if the market changes, if other companies come with different kind of products, innovation comes up in the market, sometimes your team, if it's used to doing things in one way will not be able to adapt to that innovation and actually reject you know the classical example of when Microsoft in the early 2000s they had very good teams very good at developing desktop solutions starting from the desktop operating system and continuing with all the other desktop things like the Microsoft Office and they were all about the desktop applications they were very good at that and then the whole web thing starting come up you know having applications in the web like Google Docs and things like that initially Microsoft sort of not only ignored but actually rejected that kind of innovation because they were really good at doing something else and they were looking at this new thing and to them it seemed a silly idea for a while. So I think in these kind of situations, sometimes you just want to stir the pot a little bit or mix things up just not to get too comfortable and not to miss out on innovation. But you don't want to do that every week or every month. So I primarily agree with you. If you have a team that works, don't need to mess with them. But if you leave them completely comfortable for years, then they might get to be very out of touch with what's new. It uh, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not inevitable, but, you know, you have that risk, that tendency. And I've seen that. I've seen that in the companies I've worked with, you know, in simple things like teams always did things in one way. They always organized in a certain way, for example, Scrum. And they did Scrum and they were really good at doing Scrum. And they always had a certain size of the team, not too large, not too small. Always had a certain mixture of seniority, these many seniors and these many juniors, and this is the proportions you should have. There was a good way of doing things. It wasn't bad. They developed it through experience, through trial and error, and it worked. But then they became so in love with that that they reject any other idea that things could be done in other way as well. What was first an advantage because they found a way to work, in time became a disadvantage because they didn't want to consider anything else. I think that's the kind of balance as a leader that you want to keep in mind. And sometimes you need to sort of challenge your teams to get out of their comfort zone once in a while. Assuming that you also have the innovation bone or that you have the openness to accept innovation or to observe it when it comes your way, right? Because if you, I don't want to use the word biased, but if you are the kind of person who falls in love with the current way of how things are done because it seems to be working, then even you as a leader would fall into the trap of rejecting outside ideas, right? Of course. And that's the trap we were all susceptible to. And that's something I personally fight actively with me all the time, because we all go through this cycle, right? You have a problem, something we don't understand, something we cannot do, something that is out of our control. And we set our sights on it and say, okay, I want to get good at that. I want to fix that problem. I want to have success in that space. I want to come up with a product, whatever it is. I want to learn something. And you work really hard to solve that problem. You learn how to do it. You educate yourself. You go through trial and error. It's painful. It takes a lot of effort. And after a long investment from your side, finally you get good at it. It's really difficult six months later or a year later to voluntarily put yourself to the same pain again. Just say, okay, I'm good at this and I could keep doing this maybe for five years, for 10 years, but I don't want to get stuck. I want to voluntarily challenge myself to learn something new, try to do something new before I'm forced to do it, forced by the market, by the economy, by whatever. It's difficult because we all like comfort to certain degrees, but I think it is a leader's job to first and foremost push them themselves in that way and then also push their teams. When I say push their teams, I mean in a very respectful way, in a very collaborative way. I don't mean create social experiments, but in a healthy way. 
That's actually very interesting. So I think what I'm hearing you say is a good leader or healthy leadership needs lifelong learning. I mean, it must incorporate that. Yes. Is somewhat entrepreneurial, right? Because it observes what's happening and it accepts that it needs to adapt. Yep, I would definitely say that. Okay. And the ego needs to be left at the door because it's hard to accept that you need to make changes if you're very ego-driven, right? I would definitely say that. I totally agree with that. Yes. I must have read this somewhere, something along the lines of you learn something to the point where you master it or you're comfortable teaching it to others or just doing it day in, day out. And that's the moment when you should check yourself and think that you should start learning something new. It's almost like reaching the level of comfort is the triggering signal for you to get out of your comfort zone once more. Yes, and it's hard to not be good again at things because you just got good at something. You find a way to do your job and you're good at it. You have it under control. You're master of your kingdom. And suddenly, if you start doing something new, you're going to be a student again. You're going to be a beginner again in certain ways. You're going to make many mistakes again. You're going to fail again. You have to give up being good at something for the sake of continuously growing. And that's also difficult. Everything is involved there. But I do think you have to do it within a certain limit. I don't think you have to do it continuously, obsessively. You can relax once in a while and rest a little bit. Like you said, I think you put it best, lifelong learning. Just have that perspective and don't get completely complacent and comfortable in one way of doing things. I've read and I've heard about many ideas in this space and I'm really a big fan of this whole idea of growth mindset and getting out of the comfort zone. Another term I've heard is one of deliberate learning. And deliberate learning is this idea of always trying to do things that are 10, 15, 20% above your current skill level, above your current comfort level. And not to do always the things you're good at because you're stagnating. And also not necessarily to try to do overnight things that are completely out of your skill level because you will fail completely and you will not actually learn anything. It will be way too difficult for you. Try something that is a little bit difficult. You can do part of it and then some areas you fail and identify the areas in which you're failing and see why and learn and repeat and do it again and learn until you get good at that. And then it's like a continuous increasing of the level and branching out into different areas. I think that's a good way to approach it. That's how I approach it most of the times. And only rarely do I make some of those more radical jumps. But most of the times, this is kind of incremental way of pushing yourself. I would recommend that. Okay, but I feel like there's a caveat here or let's say a potential blocker to this whole way of approaching things and of doing them. We are still talking about leadership and balancing the team and getting comfortable in a highly productive rhythm in a workplace setting. So your company still has goals, your employer still wants you to reach some business metrics. So how does this entrepreneurial lifelong learner that is the team leader and this team that is or isn't skill balanced, but it's trying to get there, how do they balance all of these things out with the fact that ultimately they have to deliver? And that's probably the only goal that the employer has in mind, I would say. I think you have to do it pragmatically. Let's say you finish a project and you start a new project. Let's say it's a software project, as an example. You use five technologies in that project. Change one of them. Don't change all five of them. Leave for the same that you know very well, but on one of them, change it with some 
something that is not completely different, but an improved alternative. Then maybe you had a certain way of doing the testing in your project. I'm not saying don't do testing or completely change everything, but maybe try to automate a little bit more testing or approach things slightly differently. Or maybe you had a certain way of organizing your work in iterations of a certain length or a certain way of breaking down the work. Try to change a little bit there. Make these kind of incremental changes that are not so big as to jeopardize the success of the project, but at the same time, allow you and the team to always be improving at something. Not at everything at the same time, but at something. And who knows, maybe actually even deliver faster and then make the company happy as well. Because in theory, you would be using a better way of doing things. I think that's how I would expect most leaders in big companies to do it. And in that way, balance the needs of the company to get business results and also this kind of a need to to continuously improve and learn for themselves and their teams. I have one more potentially difficult question here, which is what we've talked about so far is absolutely wonderful. The leader is a lifelong learner and has this entrepreneurial mindset. It's beautiful that they're interested in getting the team to perform well and to get into the rhythm of doing highly qualitative work. Everybody's uh, skill set is balanced. The team has great engagement. Everybody's happy. But more recently, the question of purpose has come up with a great resignation. A lot of people are just quitting because they're no longer finding purpose in their jobs. And I've personally discovered that purpose for me connects very closely with being able to add my personal value to something, to make something of my own, to launch it, to get feedback on it and so on. I've rarely, very rarely heard of situations where teams, leaders, departments are encouraged to be so innovative to the point of disruption, I've more frequently heard almost exclusively that if you're an employee or if you're part of a team, put your head down, do the work, we tell you what to do. So what are all these entrepreneurs and lifelong learners doing if they can't actually enjoy the fruits of all of this learning and put that to work and have this getting outside of their comfort zone appreciated by the company? It's not so this or that. It's a spectrum. For example, you said about yourself that for you, it's really important to put your vision and your values into something, a product you believe in, launch it. That's a very high level of autonomy you're looking for. And maybe not coincidentally, you started a startup because you have that very high level of autonomy you're seeking. But I don't think there's this kind of people and people that don't want anything. I think there's many shades of gray, so to say. And I think different people have different wants and needs for the kind of level of autonomy or flexibility or purpose or innovation or whatever that they require, that they want, that makes them happy in that moment in their life, because sometimes things change. I've known many people that say, okay, now I'm going to have some years in my life where, you know, I'm getting married. We have a kid, we bought a house. I need a few quiet years. I'm going to do my job well, but I don't want a crazy job. I want a relatively steady job. And maybe in three, four or five years, I'm going to put that in order a little bit. And I may want to stretch myself again in the professional field. Sometimes people, they're in different stages in their life. Maybe they have different personalities. I think there's quite a lot of people that don't want, and I don't mean that in a bad way, don't want this full options, 100% autonomy. They just want enough respect and enough flexibility in a corporate environment to not feel like just tools being used, you know, to be listened, to, to be asked, to have their opinion taken into account, but don't expect to be able to decide everything at the same time. I think there's many people that will be fine with that kind of an arrangement from what I see. And I think 
think that kind of a balance between the needs of the corporation and the needs of the people can be achieved without a radical transformation of anything. If only we have wise leaders in the companies that actually learn how not to be control freaks, I think that can be done relatively easily without losing money, without anything of that sort, actually. I think everyone would benefit in the end, including the company. In some companies, you have, of course, that whole entrepreneurial approach. And it varies in how real it is. In some companies, it is more real. In some companies, it is less real. It's just the sort of internal PR. I'm sure you've heard as well, in some companies, there's very well-defined internal opportunities for people to go and pitch ideas, just like you would pitch sort of a startup idea, but it's not external, it's internal. And if you convince whoever you need to convince, they allow you to form your team inside the company and for a while to see if you can make that a project. How easy it is to do that? Do all the companies have it? No, they don't. But some of them have that. So, you know, Google back in the day had the 20% time. You could take a day a week basically to do whatever. For example, Google Maps and Google Mail are two products that came from that 20% time. So these are not products that the strategic thinkers in Google said, okay, let's do maps. But two, three, four people took advantage of that flexibility and they had an idea and they developed a thing. Then the company said, yeah, it's a good idea. Let's help you push it, market it and build it and grow it and it worked. So I think there's degrees of flexibility and it depends on what you're looking for. Yeah, that's fair. I understand. Let's try to sort of draw a conclusion on this conversation about balancing skills and an entrepreneurial mindset for a leader. We are looking at the leader and expect them to understand their current context. And depending on the context, they look at themselves at the team and they understand whether a skill balance or a peak of a particular set of skills is the necessary thing to achieve the goal. Yes. That's one thing. Then the leader themselves needs to be, I guess, the embodiment of balance in a way, because they need to balance the high achieving, getting out of your comfort zone mentality with the fact that there are delivery goals and the team needs to work and we need to reach that objective. Otherwise, nobody has a salary, right? Of course. I would also say that even within the same company, there's certain projects or departments where a certain kind of leadership is more suited than others and people tend to gravitate towards what suits them best. Some leaders that like a very frantic, very high-intensity work environment may go towards more client-facing, more project management-like roles in departments that maybe change things more frequently. Some leaders that like more of a long-term thinking may gravitate towards other positions or other departments. So they don't all have to be equally good at everything, they can also sort of find a place where their way of leadership is best suited. But generally, I would totally agree with you. The leader has to be at least aware of who they are and how they behave and what they like to do and understand their own weaknesses and strengths and take it into account. Here's a question that just came to me. What about the leadership team? Should they be well balanced? Should they have a peak? Yes, I definitely think they should be balanced. Not every individual needs to be perfectly balanced, but the team needs to be balanced. For example, if the CEO is the very visionary risk taker, let's do everything, let's change everything kind of person, awesome. But then you need others in the team that are a little bit more on the, okay, how do we do that? Let's also plan a little bit before we change everything. And you create that healthy tension of someone that's always pushing for innovation and others that are actually thinking about the practicalities of doing that. I think that the leadership team needs to be balanced and they know how to work together and respect each other. So they actually take advantage of those differences in perspective, for sure. And I think one of the biggest mistakes a leader can make 
to any leader. But if the CEO makes it, it's a huge mistake, is to create a team of people that think like them. Because then it's an unbalanced team, but unbalanced in the worst way. Everybody's going to agree with you and all the mistakes you make, nobody's going to see them because they all have the same blind spots and they all have the same weaknesses like you have. So actually, as a leader, for example, if I create a team, I'm going to make sure I hire some people in that team that are different from me. I know that will be annoying at certain points because I will go and I'll say, let's do this, let's do that. And that person will have an attitude that is very different from the attitude I would have. But that's exactly why they're valuable in combination with me, because together we are better than any of us by ourselves. I'm actually so happy that you mentioned that. And I 100% relate and understand why you're saying that. I do remember some situations where I've genuinely had to overcome my natural tendency to reject a certain behavior or someone's particular set of skills because it felt so uncomfortable trying to integrate that into my new attitude or into my new behavior as a team leader, part of the team and so on. And by far, by far, adding people that are different from you produces better results. I completely agree, but it's a painful process to a certain extent. Mature teams know that about themselves, so there's no illusions. If you are the risk taker and the innovator in the team and always the person that's looking to new ideas about how to do things and the latest trends, you know that about yourself. And they know that about yourself. We can talk about it, we can laugh about it. Nobody's expecting you to be the one that's actually thinking carefully about the risks and costs. That's somebody else's job. And we know about that person that they're very good at identifying risks, but they almost never are the ones that are going to push us to change. And we know that about them. So when I have a conversation, it's a very natural, when when the risk-averse person starts thinking, "Mm, let's think what could the problems be? What could be the reasons not to do this? Because that's sort of the job in a way. If you get to that level of maturity in the relationships in the team, things can work out quite well and you can actually enjoy that diversity in the team. Okay, Very interesting. So healthy leadership is entrepreneurial. There's this lifelong learning component that's an absolute must. There's the lack of ego. And then there's the awareness that diversity of ideas or diversity of behaviors actually adds and amplifies the team. Yes. Okay. Totally agree. I'm going back now in my mind to all the situations where I distinctly remember some sort of work conflict or difference in opinion, which ultimately produced a better result because we hashed it out to the end and figured out the best way to move forward with contributions from all the sides involved. So I fully agree. It is a difficult process though. I mean, if you're not comfortable with conflict or just disagreement, then it's hard to go to all the other next steps that are needed to reach the goal because you just get stuck in that moment and you focus on the disagreement itself instead of focusing on the fact that the disagreement can produce good results. I actually heard someone saying that conflict is information. And to me, that was eye-opening because it was the first time when someone told me that conflict is something else other than just disagreement. Even though I knew and I had been through situations where conflict had created a better solution, but just the idea of reframing it in terms of conflict is information changed completely my my perspective on conflict itself. Now I see it as productive and I'm far more able to not get so caught up in it and I'm far more willing to bring up 
all the uncomfortable things that I have on my mind or the questions or the doubts, because I'm looking forward to the answer to all of these difficult things. I totally agree with that. Actually, that's a big belief for me as well. And if you think about it, if you have a team talk about an issue, what's the likelihood they will agree on any issue? It's very small, unless the issue is uh, trivial. But if it's trivial, it's not interesting. If the issue is challenging, it's only normal that we'll have different opinions. And then it's only normal to have conflict. The only way in which you will not have conflict, if you're not confident enough, we don't trust each other enough to be honest in the conversation. I think what's really important is for that conflict, good conflict, is like you said, it's not about winning the argument or proving that you're right. It's about actually disagreeing with the intention of finding the best solution for everyone, for the team, for the company, no matter what that solution is. It's like a learning process. Another thing someone told me a long time ago that really changed the way I look at things, I used to go into meetings where decisions were to be made. And I used to have this mindset of, okay, I'm going to this meeting. We will have to make a decision. I think that the best way to do it is this. And my job, the way I saw it, was to sort of make my case, come up with the best way to explain why I'm right, with the best of intentions. That's how I was looking at that kind of a situation. And that mentor told me that that's not how you should approach a meeting. You should go in there only thinking about the problem, the question. What is the question you're trying to answer? What is the problem you're trying to solve? Forget you have an idea. Forget you have a preference. Forget what you think is best. Put that to the side and go there and focus on the question and listen a lot and just try to go along with what the other people are saying and contribute and you'll end up at a solution which could be your solution other people's or a common solution and that's the whole point it's not about making your case it's about actually learning something and developing something together that's how i see good conflict Thank you for reframing this for me, because it's the first time I'm thinking about it like that. I guess we never go into a situation eagerly just trying to voice our opinion, but rather to solve the problem. I mean, if we're really interested in solving the problem. But thank you for framing it like that. You go into the conversation with a problem focus, not with the goal to just speak your mind or to share your opinion. There's a slight, I guess, flavor of ego here. (laughs) I also have to be careful about words. When we say problem focus versus solution focus, somebody might say, oh, but you should be solution oriented yes but it's not about that it's about not being fixed on your solution and just forgetting it for a second even if you have an idea in order to be able to truly listen to what the other people are having to say and to actually what the problem is and then of course focus is going to move to solutions but collaboratively that's the idea I feel like we've kind of created a portrait of the leader's set of skills or what a good leader knows how to do in order to create a well-balanced team, but also for them to be a well-balanced person and to actively contribute to the company. So a leader is entrepreneurial or is able to balance an entrepreneurial mindset with understanding that in certain situations, you need a certain steadiness of pace. You don't always innovate, just like you don't always always keep a steady pace and don't change anything. Then a good leader is a lifelong learner and tries to impress that upon their peers and to encourage them to also do that. A good leader leaves their ego at the door. And if there's a problem that comes up, they focus on the problem and focus the conversation around the problem, not eagerly waiting to give their own solution or their own take on the problem welcomes diversity because they know it generates productive or constructive conflict. When you have a diversity of opinions, you are implicitly going to have conflict, but that conflict structured in such a way or guided in such a way that it is productive and creates, how did you say in the beginning, the sum of the parts? The total is greater than the sum of the parts. So basically that diversity of opinions generates new solutions and that actually is the most valuable thing that the team can produce. 
Yep, they can come up with things that none of them individually could, but together they can. I feel like every single conversation we have about leaders and leadership reaches that one point where leaders are the embodiment of the company culture. If they screw up, then the company culture is screwed up and it starts all the way from the top. The behaviors you see expressed by leaders are actually the ones that are going to define the company culture, undoubtedly. I think that's totally true. It doesn't matter what you put on the website or what you write on the walls about what the company values officially are, if leaders don't actually display them, manifest them, adopt them, and on a day-to-day basis, in day-to-day situations, and at all levels. Because everyone, every worker in a company, and by worker I mean everyone, is going to first and foremost look at the example of their immediate leader, not what the CEO says in the quarterly speech, because the CEO is only going to say beautiful things in the quarterly speech. They always say beautiful things. They know how to speak well. But if that thing actually is reflected in what their immediate leader does and other people around them do, then everybody says, yeah, this is for real. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I never thought about it that way. So this proximity, you're just observing the behavior most often and closest manifested to you. And that's the thing that you understand about your surroundings. Oh, yes. <laughs> I think I'm going to have a hard time figuring out the title for today's episode, but I want to say this conversation around a leader's skills and the team's set of skills is I guess the most difficult one to have but also the most fun because this is the meat of the problem right if you figure out a way to do things right and you consistently are critical enough to observe when you're making mistakes and also able to put that into context and able to capture a problem in its early stages and to self-correct you're going to be fine this is key to everything and fundamentally you have to care that's where it starts as a leader you have to care to do a good job to create an environment for your team where they can feel good and grow and just care to leave something behind in the sense of a good product a good team things like that and if you care you're going to find the solutions as well if you don't doesn't matter how smart you are i'm actually going to add that to the list when i do the highlights for the episode so caring and i think i'm going to put it at the top of the list if you care it's going to work out i love what you just said now Thank you for today. As always, such an interesting conversation. I hope it's been fun for you as well. And I hope our listeners are extracting some tips and tricks for their own work situations. Thanks everyone for listening to us. Thanks again for the invitation. Thank you so much for being with us today. This has been another episode of L&D Spotlight. If you'd like to get in touch and join the conversation, write to me at liz at niftylearning.io or connect with me on LinkedIn at Liz Stefan. Have a productive week, everyone.